0: We open the Holy Scriptures to the book of 2 Samuel. We will read a couple portions of this book before turning to our text, which is Psalm 3. The reason for this is that the history contained in 2 Samuel 15 and a couple of the chapters that follow is the historical background of Psalm 3. So we will read in 2nd Samuel 15 verses 1 through 31 and then we'll jump to chapter 16 and read verses 5 through 13 before turning ahead to Psalm 3. Let us hear the word of the Lord. And it came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and fifty men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Absalom said, moreover, O that I were made judge in the land, that every man which had any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And it came to pass after forty years that Absalom said unto the king, I pray thee, Let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed unto the Lord in Hebron. For thy servant vowed a vow while I abode at Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord shall bring me again indeed to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said unto him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as ye hear the sound of the trumpet, then ye shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. And with Absalom went two hundred men out of Jerusalem that were called. And they went in their simplicity, and they knew not anything. And Absalom Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city, even from Gilo, While he offered sacrifices and the conspiracy was strong for the people increased continually with Absalom and there came a messenger to David saying the hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom and David said unto all his servants that were with him at Jerusalem arise and let us flee. For we shall not else escape from Absalom, make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said unto the king, Behold, thy servants are ready to do whatsoever my lord the king shall appoint. And the king went forth and all his household after him, and the king left ten women which were concubines to keep the house. And the king went forth, and all the people after him, and tarried in a place that was far off. And all his servants passed on beside him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the Gittites, six hundred men, which came after him from Gath, passed on before the king. Then said the king to Ittai the Gittite, Wherefore goest thou also with us? Return to thy place, and abide with the king. For thou art a stranger, and also an exile. Whereas thou camest but yesterday, should I this day make thee go up and down with us? Seeing I go whither, I may. Return thou, and take back thy brethren. Mercy and truth be with thee. And Etai answered the king, and said, As the Lord liveth, and as... My lord the king liveth, surely in what place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also will thy servant be. And David said to Ittai, go and pass over. And Ittai the Gittite passed over, and all his men, and all the little ones that were with him. And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people passed over. The king also himself passed over the the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. And lo, Zadok also and all the Levites were with him, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God. And Abiathar went up until all the people had done passing out of the city. And the king said unto Zadok, Carry back the ark of God into the city. If I shall find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me again, and show me both it and his habitation. But if he thus say, I have no delight in thee, behold, here am I. Let him do to me as seemeth good unto him. The king said also unto Zadok the priest, Art not thou a seer? Return into the city in peace, and your two sons with you, Ahimaaz thy son, and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will tarry in the plain of the wilderness until there come word from you to certify me. Zadok therefore and Abiathar carried the ark of God again to Jerusalem, and they tarried there. And David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet, and wept as he went up, and had his head covered, and he went barefoot. And all the people that was with him covered every man his head, And they went up, weeping as they went up. And one told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Thus far we read in chapter 15. Let's now jump to chapter 16 and pick up our reading at verse 5 and We'll read through verse 13, and this is a particularly important event that took place as David was on that road going into the wilderness, heading eastward. Verse 5 of chapter 16, And when King David came to Behurim, behold, thence came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Girah. He came forth and cursed still as he came. And he cast stones at David, and at all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And thus said Shimei when he cursed, Come out, come out, thou bloody man, thou man of Belial. The Lord hath returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead thou hast reigned. And the Lord hath delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom thy son. And behold, thou art taken in thy mischief, because thou art a bloody man. Then said Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, unto the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over, I pray thee, and take off his head. And the king said, What have I to do with you, ye sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse, because the Lord hath said unto him, Curse David. Who shall then say, Wherefore hast thou done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son, which came forth of my bowels, seeketh my life. How much more now may this Benjamite do it? Let him alone, and let him curse, for the Lord hath bidden him. It may be that the Lord will look on mine affliction, and that the Lord will requite me good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went by the way, Shimei went along on the hillside over against him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and cast dust. Now let's turn over to Psalm three, and Psalm three will be the text that we consider tonight. Notice the heading of Psalm 3, the reason for reading the passages we just did. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Here's one verse in the Bible, really half of a verse, that captures the essence of the biblical Reformed faith in just a few words. A few potent, comforting words. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Packed into that expression are all of the doctrines of grace. There is no savior but God. We are saved by his sovereign grace alone, through Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone. God is the author of our salvation and of our eternal well being from beginning to end. That wonderful doctrinal truth which we hold so dear is a truth That's not just for the mind, but a truth for the heart and a truth that is a source of such strength for real life. And that's one of the great things that Psalm 3 shows us. Psalm 3 shows us a man in the midst of great adversity. A man that you might say is up against impossible odds. And the thing that keeps him from collapsing. The thing that keeps him from turning into a despairing puddle on the ground. The thing that strengthens him to go forward. And to put one foot ahead of another. One more day. The thing that gives him peace so that he can sleep at night. Is this truth. Salvation. Belongs to the Lord. And His blessing. Abides upon His people. It's a truth we know very very well. As reformed Christians. And sometimes we know it so well. That an unattent- unintended and not good consequence can be. That because we know it. We let it just sit here. And we don't really or always hold it here and bring it to bear on all of life. And this psalm shows us how to bring this truth to bear on all of life. Many of the psalms don't give us much information about their historical background. Some of them do and Psalm 3 is one of them that does. The heading reliably points to the historical event in the psalmist's life and David's life that stood behind what is written here. A time of intense trouble. And so as we enter into this psalm and the historical background, we see the trouble that King David is in at this time in his life. And we see what the truth the Spirit inspired him to write. What that truth did for him to get him through those troubles. That is the wonderful lesson of this psalm for us. Most of us haven't been through exactly what David went through here. But many of us have been through afflictions that you might say are painful just like this. Or have been surrounded by troubles. Or in the midst of such troubles right now and they're so numerous that it seems like there's nowhere to turn and we don't know what to do. We're hopelessly outnumbered by our troubles. And the word of god that breaks through it all and comforts us and strengthens us is the simple truth salvation belongs to the lord and believing people of god you belong to jesus christ and belonging to jesus christ the salvation that belongs to god he gives to you Let's enter into this psalm then, taking as our theme that phrase at the end, salvation belongs to the Lord. First we're going to look at David's troubles and apply that to ourselves. Against impossible odds. Then we will see how the psalmist finds peace. Through faith in God, he finds peace. So much so that by the end of the psalm, There is a note of steadfast confidence. Confidence of salvation. Even in the midst of troubles. Even against all odds. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Behind those words of the psalmist, that cry of the psalmist, is the great calamity that we read about in 2 Samuel 15 and 16. The conspiracy and the rebellion of King David's own son whom he loved, his son Absalom, who springs a plot upon his father and tries not only to seize his father's throne, but to take his father's life. What a calamity. The beginning of 2 Samuel 15 shows us that for years Absalom had plotted against his father. With cunning, with deceit, with feigned generosity and care for the people, he stole their hearts. One of the things he did is described in the opening verses of 2 Samuel 15, Absalom would make sure that he was there at the city gates and he would intercept the people coming from the different tribes of Israel with concerns, with a need for the king to judge their case. And Absalom would lie to them. He would say, Yes, your cause I can see is just. I wish I could help you, but the king hasn't appointed anyone to hear cases like yours. If only I was the king, if only I was set up as judge over Israel, I would see to it that every man received justice. And whenever someone would come to Absalom, he would go over the top in a display of affection for that person. He endeared himself to the people, but deceitfully and self-servingly. He was stealing hearts in order that he might lead Israel astray in his plot against his own father. And for years he planted these seeds of rebellion until after 40 years the time was ripe. And Absalom lied to his father David. He said, I am going to Hebron to fulfill a vow that I made. When in actuality he was going there to set in motion his conspiracy. And all of those years of Absalom working in the shadows paid off. As 2 Samuel 15 verse 12 says, The conspiracy was strong. For the people increased continually with Absalom. Absalom. There you see what's behind the opening cry of Psalm 3. The conspiracy was strong. For the people increased continually with Absalom. David cries as he's on the run. Lord how are they increased that trouble me. Many are they that rise up against me. So strong was Absalom's conspiracy. So rapid was its spread. So many were the people whose hearts he stole. Such that they rallied to his rebellious cause. That David upon hearing what was going on in the city of Hebron, had no choice but to flee Jerusalem and take refuge in the wilderness. For he knew that Absalom would come with an army far greater than his to trap him in Jerusalem. And who knows what Absalom and his soldiers would do to the city. And so David and his household and a mere 600 loyal followers fled east into the wilderness and Jerusalem wept to see their king flee as a fugitive from his throne, from his home, from his capital city, from Mount Zion where the tabernacle was pitched, from the ark of God. David must flee. And as the history in Second Samuel 15 goes on, we are given to follow David as he heads eastward on the road of the wilderness The road that would head east towards Jericho and across the Jordan River. David passes over the valley and the brook that's to the east of Jerusalem, the brook Kidron. And on the other side of that brook is the famous Mount of Olives. David journeys up the slope of the Mount of Olives, and 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, describes. Him and his company as they go. And wept he as he went up. And had his head covered. And he went barefoot. As an expression of both penitence and sorrow before God. And it's there. On the slopes of the Mount of Olives, that word comes to David that one of his most trusted counselors, a man by the name of Ahithophel, was in on the conspiracy against him. And another dagger pierces the king's heart. Lord, how many are they that trouble me, that rise up against me? Past the Mount of Olives, towards the wilderness, down the road, and the troubles don't let up. Coming to the village of Behurim, a man named Shimei, a descendant, or rather someone connected with the, the house of Saul, comes out. And he runs along the ridge beside the road... Yelling and shouting at David and his companions. Throwing dust into the air. Throwing stones at David and his companions. And as Second Samuel 16 verses 7 and 8 tell us, he curses David. Worse than the stones and the dust are Shimei's bitter words. Come out, come out, thou bloody man, and thou man of Belial. The Lord hath returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead thou hast reigned. And the Lord hath delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom thy son. Absalom thy son. Who's seeking your life right now. Behold, thou art taken in thy mischief, because thou art a bloody man. And now you see why David says, in verse, verse 2 of Psalm 3 Many there be which say of my soul, There is no help for him in God. Shimei is saying, You're cursed, David. God has forsaken you. You're getting what you deserved. You had this coming, you bloody man. A couple days in the wilderness. As the history goes on, David, laden with fears and grief, would at last reach the fortified city of Mahanaim, east of the Jordan River. and There he would stop, and it would be in the woodlands of Ephraim, near that city, that the battle would take place, which would decide the future of Israel, and who would be king. And that battle would be in the hands of the Lord, who would give victory to David. And Absalom would be killed, and his forces defeated But David doesn't know that yet. Psalm 3 is written before that happens. Psalm 3 is written likely while David is on the road or the the first morning after he fled Jerusalem. It's a psalm that is written in the midst of all of this trouble. You can just imagine the tornado of feelings and fears that David wrestled with those difficult days It seemed like all Israel had turned against him and gone behind his back They had flocked to Absalom in droves. And remember, these are not people that David didn't care about. He was called by God to be the shepherd king of Israel. God took David from his father's sheep to set him over Jehovah's sheep. And David loved Jehovah's sheep. He was their under-shepherd. To have droves of the people of Israel join league with his murderous son was a dagger to David's heart. It seemed as if all had turned against him, the Lord's anointed, thrusting him off his throne and away from his home. Now he's on the run with these foes in hot pursuit, vastly outnumbering him. Think about where David's mind so easily could have gone. Back to before he was king, when he was on the run from Saul. A fugitive and now it's happening all over again except the one who is hunting him is his own flesh and blood. What grief! And that grief cuts even deeper. Not only do a bunch of the people of Israel join league with his treacherous son, but many of David's own friends and his trusted advisors betray him and are in league with Absalom. Ahithophel. A member of David's inner circle. It might have been that David had talked to Ahithophel just a few days earlier to seek his counsel on something. And now the dreadful reality is sinking in that that two faced man was plotting my ruin, my hurt, even as he spoke sweet words and feigned friendship towards me. The cutting knives of betrayal. Slice at David's heart. As verse 6 of the Psalm says, he feels as though he's being hemmed in, betrayed, betrayed by so many who now rise up against him, and now they come after him, and they're going to surround him. It is as if ten thousands of people will surge around him to snuff out his life what what can a man do against such treachery against such evil against such power deployed for one's ruin it's as if david is against impossible odds Then worst of all were those words that David's foes spoke. And which Shimei uttered. There is no help. There is no help for you. Verse 2. And that word help in the Hebrew is salvation. There is no salvation for him in God. David's foes portrayed These present troubles as clear proof that God had abandoned David. That God had turned his back on David. That God was going to destroy David now for all of his sins. And there is the worst terror that a child of God can face. Is God against me? After all, God had deposed disobedient Saul. Is that happening to me now as well? Is this it? Are my jeering foes speaking the hard truth? Is there no help in God? You can imagine how that cursing of Shimei and those malicious words of his foes would have caused David great pangs of conscience. Because you see... What's happening in Absalom's rebellion is in some part a consequence of David's own sin. Nathan had told David after David had sinned against Bathsheba and sinned against Uriah that trouble would not leave David's house. The chastening hand of God would fall upon David's house. And that's what's happening here. What trouble in David's house as his own son turns on him. And seeks his life and expels him as a fugitive in the wilderness. And you see Satan was whispering. Satan was whispering in those malicious words of David's enemies. Satan wanted David To see that chastening hand of God not as a chastening hand, not as a fatherly hand, but to see it as the hand of a God coming in wrath to destroy him. Satan was aiming to shake David's confidence such that he would sink into despair and begin to believe that God had forsaken him. That there was no salvation for him. That what he was going through now was the work of God destroying him. You see, Satan is the greatest schemer here. Satan is behind Absalom's plot. Satan is seeking to destroy David because Satan is seeking to stop the coming of David's greater son. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan whispers those same lies in our grief, in our troubles, in our fears. It's a lie. But what a potent lie it can be. If God loved you, this wouldn't be happening, Satan says. And the fact that it's happening must mean he doesn't love you. We must counteract that lie with what we know from the Scriptures. But God tells us again and again in the gospel. That when the Lord stretches out his hand upon his people. and he chastens. He does so in love. As a father chastens his son. And in fact Hebrews 12 flips things around. If you're not chastened. That's a sign that you're not a son. Chastening is a sign of God's favor. It's him doing good even when he afflicts. Satan whispers, it's because of your sin. You know what a sinner you are. David, you know what you did. It's because of that sin God has turned upon you to destroy you. There is no help for you. There is no salvation. When Satan whispers that same lie in our ears, Our response is the gospel. And here we have to leap to the end of the psalm. Though we'll get there later. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And that's a word that silences the accuser. And silences the father of lies. God sent into the world the greater son of David. Who gave his life for my sins. And I have forgiveness of sins in him. And God will not destroy the forgiven sinner. To do so would be to overturn the very work of His only begotten Son. Christ covers my sins. Because of Christ, whenever the Almighty God stretches out His hand and lays His hand heavily upon me, it is not to destroy, it is not to ruin, it is not to punish with fierce wrath, but it is to chasten in love and even when His stripes are heavy, They serve our healing. And they must serve our salvation. Because by Jesus' stripes we have been already healed. As we look at David's grief. As we look at the history behind the cry that begins this psalm. Let's notice one last thing. That God who is sovereign over all of this is creating a type, is putting together a picture of David's greater son and his suffering, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a striking parallel between David's flight from Jerusalem and what took place in Jesus' life, especially in the last week of his public ministry, the Passion Week. You remember that the last week of Jesus earthly ministry began with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem where he was acclaimed loudly by the people with hosannas and the waving of palm branches. His way was paved with the coats of the people who celebrated his coming and in such short a time there would be such a turning, such a betrayal as the city would turn against The lowly king of glory. And cry crucify him. Less than a week later after crying Hosanna. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Crucify him. What betrayal our savior suffered for us. You think the night that Jesus was betrayed. The Thursday of his passion week. When Jesus would follow the same path that David did. Heading eastward out of Jerusalem, across the brook of Kidron, up the slopes of the Mount of Olives to that garden called Gethsemane. Where the worst treachery ever sprung upon a man would take place. It was in the Mount of Olives that David learned of the betrayal of Ahithophel. And it was in the Mount of Olives in the garden of Gethsemane, That the one Ahithophel pictures, Judas Iscariot, would betray our Lord Jesus into the hands of sinners. And Jesus would be surrounded by a band come to take him with swords and with staves. See David in the history climbing the slope of Mount Olivet weeping. You Catch a glimpse there. Of the agony of the Savior's soul in Gethsemane. When he sweat great drops of blood. Once betrayed by that member of his own inner circle. Jesus was taken to trial. And though innocent he was condemned. And it looked like there was no help. For him. He went to judgment. He went to Calvary, and on Calvary, his foes echoed what David's foes railed against him. David's foes said to him, There is no help for you in God. And the mocking multitude, the scribes and the Pharisees, chief among them as they gathered around the cross, said to Jesus, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. David was not God forsaken. Jesus on the cross suffered all the fullness of what it is to be God forsaken. To deliver us from it. From it. To reconcile us to our God. So that for us. There is always help. There is always salvation. From our God. No matter what the devil whispers. No matter what the foes say. When they rail against us. No matter how Much our troubles, our foes multiply against us. No matter how hard the battle against our sin becomes. No matter if we feel as though we are surrounded by ten thousands. Hosts of sin, hosts of foes, hosts of affliction. There is always salvation with God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And that's what sustains us. That's what sustains us in troubles. That's what sustains us even when we feel we are up against impossible odds. Faith lays hold of this truth. Faith finds peace. Nothing else can find peace. Because faith looks to the God to whom salvation belongs and faith Trusts this God and rests in this God. And casts itself upon this God. And that's what we see here in David. Even when he was up against seemingly impossible odds. His son and his host is in hot pursuit. And it seems as though that great host of Absalom will soon encircle him and consume him. David, by faith, finds peace even amidst that trouble. And the body, the the middle of Psalm 3, shows us that peace that David finds by faith. It's a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing that God does when we are pressed on all sides by troubles or by foes. He uses that pressing adversity not to drive us away from Him, but to draw us closer to Him. And revive in us a sense of our utter dependency upon God. God uses those trials to help us refocus on Him. When things are going good, or at least moderately well, it's so easy to trust in ourselves, to trust in our own resources, to trust in our own intelligence, to trust in our own strength, to trust in earthly things, in earthly kings, in horses, in chariots. But when God in his sovereignty takes one of his children and sets that child up against seemingly impossible odds. Leaving us with no false gods to turn to because they are manifestly without any power. Stripping us of anywhere else to go. He. Looms large because he is the only one to turn to. And that's what we see in David here. David, on the run with nowhere to turn, turns to his God in prayer and pours out his soul to God. That's what verses 1 and 2 are. It's David lamenting. We have here another psalm of lament pouring out the grief and the fear of his soul before God, casting his cares upon the Lord, and in so doing, taking his refuge in god and so there is this wonderful turning in verse 3 but thou but thou powerful words of faith but thou o lord art a shield for me my glory and the lifter up of my head. Be it as it may that my treacherous son Absalom is chasing me to seek my head. Be it as it may that Ahithophel of my inner circle, my trusted counselor, has betrayed me. Be it as it may that ten thousands of people have rallied behind the usurper and are coming after me. Be that as it may. Nevertheless, God is my God. But thou. Here is the truth that trumps all that. But thou art a shield for me. All that I see around me. All that the enemies say to me. Cannot override this. I have my God. And my God has me. That's the faith. That Jesus says overcomes the world. That's the faith that finds peace. No matter how much the troubles increase. No matter how many rise up against me. I still have my God. Who is a shield. Makes sense that David would start there. David was a military man. He was the warrior king of Israel. Perhaps the night before he wrote this psalm. He had laid himself down to sleep in the wilderness. With his sword and his shield and his spear. Laying there right next to him. David knew what a shield was. He knew how a shield was important in battle. It was the thing that protected you against the swords and spears of the enemy. But faith sees the uselessness of that shield, that metal shield. Not that David would throw aside that means if he went into battle. No, he would use that means for his protection. But David sees that that metal shield is useless to protect him against the impossible odds arrayed against him, against so many enemies. The Lord, the Lord is my shield. Though I can't see Him with my eyes, He is a shield far stronger than the hardest metal shield. His divine attributes are the shield that array themselves around me. Stronger, tougher, higher than even the stone walls of a fortress. Even a shield wall of these Loyal men, these mighty men all around me, my 600 followers, nothing compared to God who is my shield. David is saying, I put my trust in God alone and in Him. I have my protection and my security. Even if ten thousands encircle me, God is my shield who surrounds me. And I will not fear. I will not fear. Thou art a shield for me and my glory. That is, David says, having thee, O Lord, I have all. And having thee, thou dost preserve me and my dignity. You think of the humiliation, the shame that David has here as the Lord's anointed. As the king who has to run away from his capital city and run into the wilderness. To escape or try to escape the massed army of the insurrectionists coming after him. Thou art my glory, the one who preserves my dignity as thy child and as thy anointed. The one for whom and for whose glory my life is meant to be. The lifter up of my head, David says. Think of David climbing the Mount of Olives barefoot and weeping with his head covered. Undoubtedly, his head was bowed down as well. God is the lifter of the head. The image is a father with his gentle hand lifting the head of his distraught child that is looking down in sorrow, in grief, in fear. Lifting the head of that child so the child's eyes meet his. And the child's eyes look into the kind face of the father. That's what God does. That's what he does in his gospel. In our troubles, when our troubles encircle us, we're burdened and we're bent down. Or sorrow has our heads down. With his gentle hand, he lifts our heads to look into the face of Jesus Christ. In whose face we see the depths, something of the depths of God's mercy, his love, his compassion, his grace. He lifts the head and comforts. God had lifted David's head after he had fallen into that great sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. And that's why in Psalm 3 you don't find an explicit confession of sin. Yes, Absalom's rebellion in these in these events were a consequence of David's sin and there's a chastening hand of God in this. But David understands that that sin is forgiven. God had forgiven him before this. God had spoken to him that word of forgiveness. That word of forgiveness stands behind. The the beautiful Psalm 32, where David says, Blessed is the man whose sins are covered, whose iniquity is pardoned. By grace, God sustained David such that he did not give in to the lie of the devil, that this is God destroying you, but as one who was forgiven, he knew and he trusted. God is not coming after me now to destroy me for my sin. He has forgiven that sin. And that's something that we need to remember as God's people. When we go through adversity, sometimes the devil comes and he whispers that lie. You remember that sin of youth? God's destroying you for it now. God's turned his face in wrath against you for that now. And we silence that lie with the truth of the gospel. That in Christ my sins are covered. And God takes that sin and he casts it into the depths of the sea. And even though there may be consequences that perhaps even last through my life. Those consequences are not God destroying me. God doesn't forgive a sin and then later in my life drag it out of the sea so that he might punish me for it. When God forgives, he forgives and he remembers our sins no more. By grace, David had that comfort. By grace, we do too. With it, we silence the devil's lies. When God chastens, it's not to destroy. Not to destroy. And so with David, let us see that God is our shield. He is our protector in the battle of the Christian life. We're not exempt from the battle. A shield is a tool of warfare. We're going to be in the battle. That God is our shield means we're going to have to go through the battle. But the battle of the Christian life will not consume us. Even when it seems as though we are against impossible odds. The confidence. Of the Christian is that the Lord is my shield. And faith finds peace in that. The Lord is our glory. The Lord is the lifter up of our heads. So David finds peace. As he ponders who God is to him. David finds peace as he thinks back upon. How God has dealt with him in the past. Verse 4. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. You notice the past tense there. David thinks back upon how God has dealt with him in the past. How God has heard his prayers. How God has protected him in the years gone by. And he comes back to that in verse 7 where he uses the past tense again. Thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. How many conflicts was David involved in where the Lord gave him victory? Perhaps David's mind went back to his very first battle against the towering giant Goliath. The Lord smote his enemy on the cheekbone and broke the teeth of that lion, Goliath. How David delivered him from the hands of Saul. Delivered him from the hands of the Philistines. David thinks upon God's goodness to him in the past. And that becomes something that gives him peace in the present. God's past faithfulness. His past acts of deliverance. Show me how he will deal with me in the here and now. Because God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today. And forever, what he has done for me in the past, he will do for me now. Even if I don't see it. Even if it looks as though I'm up against impossible odds. Even if I feel the weight of his chastening hand upon me in these afflictions. Nonetheless, I am confident. He is faithful. And even when he afflicts me, he is faithful in that affliction. Faith finds peace. Faith finds peace. And so verse 5 is is astonishing, isn't it? If David wrote this the first morning after he fled Jerusalem, then verse 5 is reflecting on what you would expect to be an utterly horrible night on the run in the wilderness and yet david says this i laid me down and slept i awaked for the lord sustained me there's a calmness there's a there's a peace In those words, that passes all understanding, that makes no sense to the human mind when it thinks naturally. How can David lay down and sleep when he's on the run, when there is an army pursuing him? How is his heart not racing? How is he not jumping awake at the slightest noise? How is he able to sleep without his mind spinning itself Faith finds peace. The Lord is my shield. The glory, my glory. The lifter up of my head. He's the God who has heard my prayers in the past and hears my prayers now. He is the God who smote my enemies upon the cheekbone and defanged them. I I rest in Him. I rest in Him. And so David's very real fear becomes subdued by faith, mastered by faith. It doesn't mean that David didn't feel any more fear, he did. But faith subdues fear by showing that everything that we fear, even though it looks so big to us, it's tiny in comparison to our God and His power and His good will towards us, His people. When God is in the forefront of our minds and before our eyes. Fear is subdued. David slept that night by faith. The believer lives and walks by faith. And the believer rests and sleeps by faith as well. Looking to God and to his Christ. There alone is found that inner peace that we see here in David. Even amidst all of his troubles. Do you know that peace? That peace doesn't mean that afflictions don't hurt. That peace doesn't mean that we're never scared. Frightened. That peace that passes all understanding is like a rock that upholds. It's a peace. That gives hope. Even in the hardest times. It's a peace that sustains. Turn to your God for that peace. in every time of need. He is the God of peace who gives abundantly to His children. Let His word lift your head so that your eyes look into the face of Jesus revealed in the gospel. You will have that peace. And so the psalm ends in a way very different from where it began. It began with a cry. A cry amidst trouble and it ends with an expression of confidence in salvation and even a confident petition for full deliverance. Verses 7 and 8. Arise, O Lord, David says. Save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Maybe that was the very thought that gave David the peace he needed. To fall asleep and to rest that night. And to wake up and to put one foot in front of the other and continue down the wilderness road. Salvation is of the Lord. And therefore, even if ten thousands of people surround me. I shall not be afraid of them. Because all that matters is God. And God is for me. God is sovereign. He rules over all. Salvation belongs to Him. Meaning it comes from Him alone. And it is His to give to whomever He pleases. Whenever He pleases. However He pleases. He is absolutely sovereign. And that truth comforts David. This is my God who is able to save. And who I know is willing to save. And even when I don't see it. I know he's working my good. And he will save me in his own way. In his own timing. Nothing, not even ten thousands can change that. Or stop God from arising to my aid. There's. Comforting truth that David lays hold of and is confident of. The numbers of my foes, their strength, their malice, it's all irrelevant. Whether it's one or ten thousand or a hundred thousand, it makes no difference to God. There is no such thing as impossible odds to my God to whom belongs salvation. Even if your troubles mount, And multiply. It doesn't mean God can't save you. When it comes to God's salvation. As God said to Gideon. He can save with many or with a few. And God can save from many or from a few. It makes no difference to him. One day to God is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. One demon or a legion of demons, it makes no difference to the Christ who says, Come out! And legion is expelled. No matter what you are up against, no matter how great, how many your troubles are, it makes no difference to the power of God. He is almighty and salvation belongs unto the Lord. You have no more reason to fear 10,000 than you do to fear one. Because God is as mighty to save and deliver you from one or 10,000. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Take that line, beloved. Ponder it. Think upon all it means for you. Deploy it against the devil and against his lies. And face the trials of life with that truth in your heart. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this psalm. For the beautiful comfort it gives as it directs our eyes to Thee. We are weak, we are frail, and so often our heads become bowed down and our eyes glued to all of the things here below and all of the enemies and the trials that array themselves around us. Press upon our heart the truth that Thou art mighty to save and that Thou art willing to save and Thou hast shown Thyself to be such in Jesus Christ. So that whether we face one or whether we face 10,000, it makes no difference to thee. We are safe in thy safekeeping. Hear us in mercy and comfort us with this gospel message this evening. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.